You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. We have sermon notes available in the back. We also have our slide notes available in our Google Drive folder that you can access through your bulletin. So I encourage you, if you would like those, um, to pull those up as well. Last couple of weeks, we've been specifically talking from Revelation 17 and 18. We saw um, the last two weeks, we had the same summary sentence. In the last two weeks, we had said that 17 and 18 is basically presenting to us that the world is deceptively strong in seducing us to chase after everything but Jesus. But we have hope of victory if our names are written in the book of life and if we choose to separate ourselves from ungodly pursuits. And so um, part of the application over the last two weeks that I've challenged you with is to determine what you love most about this world, to determine what it would look like for you to love it too much, and to tell someone in your life that can help hold you accountable to never loving it in that way, right? For us to step back and say, okay, what do I love what do I love much about this world? What are some things that this world offers that I love about this world? And then what would it look like for me to love that thing too much? Um, it, could be, uh, it could be a hobby. It could be um, a, an activity, a job. It could be a personal relationship in your life. What would it look like for you to abuse that thing that God has given to you to bring glory to him? What would it look like for you to use that thing in such a way that it becomes idolatry, that it becomes what is pictured as sexual immorality in chapter 17 and 18. To, to really step back, pause and reflect, to communicate that to others in your life so that you can then be held accountable to never loving something in this world too much. Some truths that I gave you to remember last week. Number one, God keeps us from falling prey to seduction and persecution. That God protects us in such a way that Even though seduction may happen at times, he's built in a clause for the church to come get us and to rescue us, right? Like we have the the Matthew 18 principle where people are meant to come and rescue us so that we do continue to persevere, even if at times we give in to temptation, right? God protects us. He allows Christians to be rescued from their sin and to continue persevering until the end. Even through persecution, God doesn't ever promise that persecution will never come, but that as persecution comes, God will protect us in that persecution in in such a way that we will remain faithful to him, okay? God keeps us from those things, uh, keeps us from falling in those things. And then number two, our responsibility is that we have to be faithful and be separated from the world in order for those things to happen. And so there's some tension there where we say that obviously it's God that's doing all of this, but there's certainly a responsibility on our part to, to carry out in obedience the things that God has called us to do. One of those things being to separate ourselves from this world. And so last week's application, what are some ways that you're striving to separate yourself from the world? What are some things that you're intentionally doing that make you, your family, different from those that are lost around you? What is is true about your life that would be untrue about others who don't follow Christ? That brings us now to Revelation chapter 19. We'll start reading in verse 1. It says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. 
For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Title of our sermon today is Are You Invited to Supper? Next week, when we see the return of Jesus, we'll find that others will actually be supper um, for the animals, for the for the birds after Christ comes and enacts judgment. And so what we're seeing over the next two weeks is that we want to be invited to supper. We don't want to become supper in chapter 19. And so there's two, two aspects, two destinies for people in this chapter. Okay, from a summary sentence standpoint, those who fear and worship God alone through their daily acts are blessed to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who fear and worship God alone through their daily acts are blessed to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. For our kids, we worship God by the way we live our lives. What we're going to see in chapter 19 today is that everything is kind of hinging on whether or not we are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Like, This is a a big blessing. Those who are invited to this supper are considered blessed in the book of Revelation. We've seen some of the other blessings in Revelation, right? We we started off the book talking about blessed are those who, who read this, hear this book, and seek to do what this book has to say, all right? This is another blessing that's contained for us in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who are invited to this supper, And we're going to see a description of those who are invited to this supper. It's people who fear God, people who worship God alone. It's people who do these type of things through their daily acts, their good deeds. It's these types of people that are blessed to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. For our kids, I want them to to understand that it's, um, it's how we live our lives that ultimately we worship God. From an introductory standpoint, chapter 19, this entire chapter is really a response to chapter 18, verse 20, where it tells the people to rejoice over her, to rejoice over Babylon, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And so there's this call for heaven and for the saints to worship, to to rejoice over the fact that God has brought judgment on Babylon, and we see a response to that call. We see a response to that command to worship in light of these events. We see that unfold in chapter 19. This passage introduces the idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb, 
even if you've never studied the book of Revelation, most likely you've heard that term, that concept, that idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This chapter introduces that to us here in Revelation. It's ultimately the consummation of marriage between Christ and the church. Okay, and so we know in other passages of Scripture, Jesus is presented as the bridegroom, the church is presented as the bride, and that all of creation is kind of moving towards this marriage of Christ to his church. And it really is, is done in a way where it kind of uh, pictures the, the Jewish marriage and how it would unfold, where there would be a, an engagement period where they were betrothed to each other, and there was, a, there was a, an extended period of time potentially where everything was being put into order, put into place, before that marriage would actually be consummated through a marriage-type supper. And so if we, if we view it from the perspective of the Jewish marriage, we are in that betrothal engagement period. But it's a period where we are expected to be completely faithful to the one that we are marrying. Okay, And, and it's in that sense where, where we even see that kind of play out with Joseph and Mary. Right and, and the expectation of her faithfulness to him, and the potential um, confusion over whether or not she has been faithful to him. Right, and so here we have the expectation that we're to remain faithful, and this is presented in light of everything else that's been talked about in seventeen and eighteen, where there's this temptation towards sexual immorality and adultery, and so all of that terminology was in reference to false worship. Right, any type of false worship, any type of worship towards the things of this world was conveyed to us in the terms of sexual immorality or impurity or adultery. So we would then expect that the, the, the good relationship, the right relationship, the, the pure marriage is a reflection of good worship, right worship, true worship towards God. Okay, so bad worship where we worship the things of this world it's pictured as sexual immorality. It's pictured as, as, as prostitution. It's pictured in, in these negative ways. Worship towards the one true God, it's pictured as a, as a true marriage between a, a bride and, and, and his groom or her groom. Okay, So that's kind of the picture that's being conveyed here to us. There's not actually a, a legit marriage that we're talking about. It's a picture of, of right worship, true worship um, that we're called to towards God. Ephesians 5.32, we've looked at in several times over the past couple of weeks, so we won't look there again, but Ephesians 5.32 is where Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives, and then he conveys the bigger spiritual reality of those instructions, that ultimately marriage is a discussion about Christ and the church, that it's a picture given to us so that we can better understand that relationship, that mystery of Christ and his people. Uh, We're to see ourselves as engaged to Christ, thus making any false worship equal to cheating on a spouse. Second Corinthians chapter 11 is a passage that we've looked at, but I, wanted, I do want us to go there again. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Okay, so Paul is describing this relationship between the church that he's writing to and Jesus, that they have been betrothed, they have been promised to Christ as his bride. And and his goal is to present them in such a way. But look what his fear is, verse 3. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, 
Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. And so Paul is conveying this this real anxiousness that he feels towards this church that, that they're going to not stay true to Christ and that they're, they're betrothed to him, but that they're going to wander and be deceived just like Eve was deceived in the Garden of Eden, right? And so we talked about not loving the things of this world, not giving in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's ultimately what Eve gave into, right? She, she desired the food, looked good to taste. She desired the look of the fruit. So you've got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and then she desires the fruit to be like God. She has that pride of life temptation that, that she falls prey to as well. So the picture here is that we're engaged to Christ and to be deceived by Satan, to love the things of this world is to cheat on the one that we're to marry. We're told here in this passage that blessed are those on the invitation list. Those that are on this invitation list in this chapter are described as, as his servants, as those who fear him, and those who produce righteous deeds. And the, these are the types of phrases and the terminology that really describes Christians, right? Sometimes we, we pervert this and we talk in terms of Christians as being people who have prayed a prayer, people who have been baptized, people who go to church regularly, right? But really the terminology that's used here in this passage, it's, it's those who are considered servants of Jesus, those who fear Jesus, and those who produce righteous deeds in their life. These are accurate descriptions of those people that are on this guest list for this marriage supper of the Lamb. Not people who've prayed prayers, not people who have been baptized. It's people who are considered servants of Jesus. And we probably all know people who call themselves Christians, who have prayed prayers, who have been baptized, but we would never describe them as servants of Jesus. That they're just not doing anything that really uh, would be defined or described as service to him. And that certainly calls us to question whether or not they've truly come to understand salvation. Because one who has been saved is one who serves Jesus, fears Jesus, and, and produces uh, righteous deeds in their life. Back to Revelation chapter 19. The, the challenge of this chapter is for us to recognize that this, this whole book of Revelation, ultimately, is really a description of how the world works and where the world is going. I mean, this is, this is how things are going to play out. Um, and, and it's really up to us to determine if we believe this or not. Revelation 19.9, these are the true words of God. The emphasis that the angel is making here is that this is how things are happening. This is how things are going to happen. This is not speculation. This is not hypothesis. This is what is going to happen in the future. These are the true words of God. This is how things play out. Do we believe that? Are we living in light of the fact that this is how things are going to happen? These are the true words of God. This is how the world functions. This is how the world comes to an end. Have we believed it? And have we responded to it? I'll give you two main points today. I'll give you a couple things underneath those. Number one, 
two things to remember. Number one, remember all of the reasons to worship God. Remember all of the reasons to worship God. What I want you to take away from this chapter is, is a reminder of the things that we have been, the things that have been revealed to us that point us to worship God. For our kids, we worship God because he is different from all other things and he controls everything. Okay, those are, those are two of the primary reasons why we worship God. One, he is uniquely different than anything else in this world, anything else in this galaxy, anything else in this universe. He's uniquely different, right? He's the only uncreated thing. So God is very separate. He's very holy in the aspects that he is different from everything else. So that's one reason that we worship him. Number two, we worship him because he controls everything in this galaxy. He controls everything in this universe, right? And so he certainly deserves our worship. He demands our worship rightfully because he's different than everything else, and he controls everything else, all right? Number one, God's actions produce unity in heaven's expression of praise. God's actions produce unity in heaven's expression of praise. It says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever Endeavor. There is agreement, listen to this, there is agreement amongst the church and heavenly beings about who God is and how he acts. Man, I look forward to this day. I look forward to this day where I don't have to sit around and debate and discuss, is God really this way and does God really do things this way? Man, even, even in a Christian school, it's not uncommon for me to have a parent come in in an interview or to have even a fellow staff member come challenge me about my theology. Do you believe God is this way? And do you believe God does things this way? Is, is he, is he in, in and of himself this way? And then does he choose to act in these ways? Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that the Bible teaches that? And so I'll get into discussion with people about who I think God is based on what the Bible says and how I think God acts based on what the Bible says. And, and they may disagree with that. But we've had even recently just some, some clear disagreements in theology with, with other people that even work at Trinity. I mean, I look forward to the day where there is unity in the way that we praise God. There is unity in the fact that we're all on the same page that this is who God is and this is how God works. Right? And, 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 and to, to see that and to be able to be unified with a, with a great multitude and know, man, all the questions that, that are really important questions, they've been removed, and we can all in unison say, this is who God is, and this is how he acts. That is taking place here in this passage. This great multitude is crying out, and they're crying out the same thing. They're crying out about God's salvation, his glory, and his power. They're crying out about his, his uniqueness and the fact that he brings judgment on those who are opposed to him. You skip down to verse 6. It says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. That phrase, the Almighty reigns, that title, the Almighty, it means the one who holds all things 
in his control. The one who holds all things in his control. The almighty reigns. That's the grounds for why we worship God. Because he's uniquely different and he controls everything. He controls everything. He's the one who holds all things under his control. God's actions produce unity in heaven. We're looking forward to a day where everybody believes the same thing about God, believes the same thing about his, his attributes, believes the same things about how he works and accomplishes things. We worship God. He's different. He controls everything. Number two, God's salvation brings judgment and vengeance upon our enemies. We've said this a lot over the time in Revelation. God continues to promise to bring judgment and to bring resolution to some of the the evil that's in the world. He judges evil and he avenges his own. That's very clear in this passage. There's celebration over the fact that Babylon has fallen. There's a great celebration over all things in opposition to him being eliminated. And it's it's a strong reminder to us because in chapter 19, verse 2, it says, He's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his saints. I wrote down in my notes, this is, a, this is a good reminder that despite how good the world may look, she is a Christian killer. That's, that's what she's here for. She is perverted and she seeks to destroy Christians. The world is so bent against God's purposes and plans that, that the world seeks to seduce us into forgetting about eternal things, right? Like, let's, let's just focus on the here and now. Let's focus on the immediate. So Satan would love to divert our attention to the future. Let's just focus on the here and now. And, it, and if he can't do that, then he's going to attack us and seek to kill us. And that may be why there's, there's, there's uh, such a, a, an unnecessary need for persecution in the United States and in the church that we know, because we're pretty good at not even thinking about eternal things. We're pretty good about thinking about the here and now. So when we talk about our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for their faith, they're not focused on the here and now, right? They're focused on eternity. And and the world is seeking to kill them for that. There's the other flip side, the seduction piece that that the church in, in America is subjected to so much. We don't think about eternal things nearly enough. We think more about the here and now. Both aspects are Christian killers, to seek to seduce us or to kill us, to to keep our attention off the things that are to come. God's salvation, what we're rejoicing over in Revelation 19, is that God comes to put an end to those temptations. He comes to put an end to that type of system that seeks to kill Christians. Number three, God's judgment cannot be reversed and last forever. God's judgment cannot be reversed and it lasts forever. It says they're crying out in verse 3, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. We saw in chapter 18 the, um, the picture of that millstone analogy, right? The idea that she is cast into the sea, cast into the ocean, never to be heard from again, never to be retrieved again, that it would, it would cost far too much money to, to resurrect her from that type of depth. This idea of the smoke going up forever and ever is an analogy that we find in the Old Testament. We've said numerous times that the book of Revelation is simply borrowing language from the Old Testament. In Isaiah 34, we see another incident of this. 
Isaiah chapter 34, verse 8. God is communicating his day of vengeance against um, people that have been opposed to Israel. And it says in verse 8, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Verse 10, Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste, and none shall pass through it forever and ever. And this was God's kind of final judgment on Esau's descendants here, the, the, the people of Edom. Think about that. You've got Jacob and Esau. They both come from the same parents, right? One has descendants that are all over the globe today. And they are identified as Jewish people. These are people who have descended from Jacob. Esau has nothing left, right? Like Esau forfeited his birthright, forfeited his future for the here and now, right? Like I like couldn't think beyond today, couldn't think of beyond his own needs for today, sacrificed his future to be satisfied today. He has no descendants left on this earth that can be named or marked, right? They, they were burned up. Their smoke goes up forever and ever. Not that there's some type of eternal flame here on this earth that, that can be tied to the destruction of Edom, right? It's, it's, a, it's a visual picture to us that the smoke goes up forever and ever, meaning it's never rebuilt. The people never bounce back. They never come back from this. So in the Old Testament, we see that applied to Edom. New Testament, book of Revelation, it's applied to, to the city of Babylon, which really encompasses all of the earth's systems. It's an encouragement to us that God's judgment can't be reversed, and it lasts forever. It's final. Number four, God's call to worship him is extended to everyone, both small and great. God's call to worship him is extended to everyone, both small and great. Back in Revelation 19, from the throne, verse 5, came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. He welcomes all that fear him. This comes from Psalm chapter 115, verses 12 through 13. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Again, that Old Testament language that's being pulled from and echoed here in the New Testament. There's a couple of things that I think are true about this. One, I think it's an encouragement to us that, man, there's, there's, no, there's no qualifications needed to, to be accepted as one who can worship God as far as intrinsic value, right? Like at, at school, I'm, I'm conditioned and used to having to tell people whether they get into Trinity or don't get into Trinity. And we have some students who are just so far behind academically, wherever they're coming, However they've been created by God, they just can't be successful at Trinity. And there's, there's times where we have to sit down and have a hard conversation with the family and say, it's just not going to work out here. We just can't service your child. We can't provide the resources needed for your child to be successful here. They can't be here. And then even when they're here, there's times where I have to sit down with parents and say, your child's grades aren't good enough. They themselves are not academically qualified to be in our honors classes. I get it. You want them in those classes. I get it. They love the subject. But to be honest with you, 
they're, they're just nowhere near these other students that are in these classes. They're, 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 not, they're not qualified. What, what comes off the pages here is that that's, that's not a part of, of being a part of God's people, that, 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 that type of hard conversation. It's not God sitting down and saying, hey, you know what, you just don't make the cut, right? It's those that we would consider great and those that we would consider small that fall into this category of those who can fear God and be invited to this great supper. It's also a reminder to us that no one is exempt from fearing and praising him. Even the greatest must worship him, but even the least can worship him. Let me say that again. Even the greatest must worship him. We see that in Revelation 19 from this great angel, right? John seems to to believe there to be something very special about this angel to the point that he's ready to give his worship to it. The angel says, whoa, stop. I'm just a servant like you of the one that we're supposed to worship. So even the greatest, even the greatest has a responsibility to worship God, but even the least can worship God. All are on equal footing before God. All are obligated to worship him alone. That promise in Psalm 115, it's echoed in in Revelation 19. Those who will fear him, small and great, are blessed and have every reason to rejoice because they fear him. Number five, God's expectation to be worshiped is based on his uniqueness. Okay, so we've already talked about God being worshiped because he reigns and he controls everything, but he's also right to expect us to worship him because he's unique. Worship belongs to God alone because nothing else is worthy of adoration like him. Matthew 4.10, when Jesus is is wrestling with Satan in the wilderness, he confesses, he confesses that, that we only worship God. We can only worship God because only God is worthy of that type of worship. Satan certainly falls short of that. I think what we see here um, in John's life in verse 10, then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God is a reminder to us that falling to idolatry can be very easy if we aren't on guard. Now, we don't know exactly what all goes on here that, that, that causes John to kind of lose sight of Jesus and begin to worship this angel. But I know for me, if I'm not careful, there are certainly things that can come into my life and very quickly take my attention off Jesus if I'm not on guard and protecting myself against the, the next big thing. First John is a, is a call to remind ourselves of this. First John chapter 5 Verse 21, it's like the last verse in in 1 John. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Man, always be on guard of things that would seek to take your affection from Jesus, to steal Jesus' attention from you. Be on guard for anything that would potentially do that for you in your life. It's very clear from this passage that angels should never be glorified and never be worshipped as they are only servants of God. Not that I've ever counseled anybody who felt prone to worship an angel that was a believer. Certainly there's perversions in other faiths where they want to label Jesus as a type of angel. And so that would certainly be a, 
um, a failure to, to yield and, and heed the warnings in Scripture about this. But in Colossians 2.18, lest any of us are ever tempted to worship an angel, it says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God that head being Jesus. So Paul's even talking here in Colossians, man, don't get, don't get confused and begin to worship anything that is less than Jesus. Even if it were to be an angel, we're called not to worship them. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 is a passage that reminds us that, that angels are simply servants of God, just like we are. Certainly um, are, are not those that should be worshiped. In addition to angels, men are never to be glorified and worshipped as they are servants only. So we certainly don't want to worship angels, but we certainly don't want to worship a human being either, right? Whether that to be a, a, an extremely godly man or woman that we may be hold in high regard or, or even a relationship that we are blessed to have with someone, Acts chapter 10 is a reminder to us that we don't worship angels and we don't worship men. We don't worship women. Acts chapter 10 verse 25 this is the, the account of Peter and Cornelius. You'll remember Cornelius was a God-fearer but didn't fully understand about Jesus. God sends Peter to Cornelius through visions that both men have. And it says, verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet, and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I too am a man. Right? We don't worship angels. We don't worship, we don't worship people. I just kind of want a side note here in Acts chapter 10. This is a, this is a good reminder to, to be very hesitant to accept praise and adoration from others about things that you, you very clearly know God is doing in through, your, through your life, right? You don't want to be the person that can't ever take a thank you. Like, you ever met those people that just, like, refuse to, to receive any type of appreciation? You don't want to be that person because that's, that's just a little bit of annoying, annoying, right? Like, we're called to affirm people. We're called to affirm people. So when people are affirming you, you don't have to completely defer that and just say, stop, 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 stop. Like, like people should be affirming towards each other. But we should certainly in that, in receiving that affirmation, be very God honoring, very Christ exalting in that. Because if we're not careful, we can become very puffed up in receiving that. Man, my example for the last couple of weeks with football is, is, is a great example of that. If, if you're in a position where, where accolades come, man, it become an, an idol very quickly. You begin to crave that and need that, and when it's not coming your way, you, you find a, a lack of fulfillment, right? Don't become somebody who desires the worship of other people as well, okay? Um, we don't worship angels. We don't worship people. I love this quote by John Piper from... Um, his sermon on Revelation 19, and I'm going to try to remember to post this today just in case you want to kind of read back through it from, uh, I think he preached on it in 1991. It says, worship is what the whole book of Revelation is about. That's the point of all of God's judgments, all God's dealings with the world, all God's plans for history from the beginning to end have this one goal, worship God. Don't worship the wealth of Babylon. Don't worship the power of Babylon. Don't worship the pleasure of Babylon. And don't even worship the holy messenger who brings you the news that Babylon has fallen forever. Worship God. He goes on to say, corporate worship 
is the declaration in the midst of Babylon that we will not be drawn into her harlotries because we have found in God the satisfaction of our souls. In his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Corporate worship, what we're doing today, corporate worship is the public savoring of the worth of God and the beauty of God and power of God and the wisdom of God. And there, worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven and to all of Babylon that we will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of the world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways. And we will celebrate with all our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will be destroyed. And you may not think about this, but, but when we get up and gather on a Sunday morning, this should be the declaration of our heart. The reason that I'm coming is to publicly express that while I live in Babylon, I am not tied to Babylon. When I was thinking, I was even thinking as we were worshiping, how much harder would it be for us to declare this if we did not have two-day weekends, right? Like, like we get the Saturday day to kind of do what we want to do, and then as Christians, we're really just giving up the second day of our weekend where we come and we worship. Man, it would be interesting to know how drastic church attendance was affected. It's already affected by the things of this world. How much more difficult would it be for the church to gather if, if Saturday became a normal work day for everybody? And Sunday was the day off for everybody and really your only day off for those of us that work a typical work week schedule. Man, that, that would be potentially difficult. Like Things would have to be rearranged and worked out for us to continue to declare through public worship that the things of this world are not nearly as important as the things that are to come. Public worship is our declaration that, man, we're not going to be we're not going to be wrapped up in the things of Babylon because Babylon is passing away. All right, lots of reasons to worship God. I've given you some here. There's unity in what we're going to see in the expression of praise in heaven. God's salvation brings judgment and vengeance upon our enemies. His judgment can't be reversed. His call to worship him is extended to everyone. His expectation to be worshipped is based on his uniqueness. He is holy. He is set apart. He controls everything. Last thing that I want to give you is remember our responsibility to produce good. Remember our responsibility to produce good. And this is tied to Revelation 19 and verse 8. It was granted her, talking about the bride, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I don't know if you paused when you read through this. I certainly did because this is, this is the type of passage where, or it's at least reflective of what is often a heretical type view or a heretical type belief in other religions about the, the, the role that works play in our salvation. And there's some tension here, and we're going to look at some other passages real quickly where there's, there's more tension in how do we understand that our salvation is completely based on the work of Jesus, our justification is based completely on the work of Jesus, and yet for us to really be justified by the work of Jesus, there has to be good works produced in our life. And it's one of those things that there's tension there, and if you spend too much time talking about it, you, you probably end up saying some things that you don't really believe and that you need to correct. 
right? Like it's one of those things where it's like, let me say this as quickly as possible because I'm afraid that if I keep talking about it, I'm gonna say something that I don't even believe myself because there's tension here in scripture, right? There's tension because we know that our salvation is completely based on the work of Jesus. And yet here we're being described as individuals who are clothed in our righteous deeds, all right? For our kids, if we are Christians, God gives us the power to do good. And that's where we're gonna see some resolution to the tension, that, that God empowers us to do the things that we um, accomplish in our life, okay? Let's start by saying, number one, God is responsible for enabling us to produce good. God is responsible for enabling us to produce good. And he is obligated himself to do it, right? Like rarely will I say that God has to do something unless God has promised to do it. Because at that point, he has now obligated himself to do it. God doesn't have to do anything unless he says he's going to do it. Now he has to do it because he's a God of truth. He does not lie. He does not change, okay? So God obligates himself to do this statement. He is responsible for enabling us to produce good. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To kind of summarize that, Paul is saying we're not saved by our good works, but God has designed salvation in such a way that when we are truly saved, we produce good works. Okay, so I've I've taught this to you before. Good works don't come before salvation, they come after salvation, right? Like we don't show up like, like someone has to do at Trinity and say, here are my transcripts, here are the things that I have done, here are the grades that I earned at my last school, can you give admittance to me into this school? Right, like they have to show up with their good works and we have to check off some boxes and say, yep, you can be here. Right, those good works come before their admittance into Trinity. Salvation is, is not based on good works being brought. It's based on, on grace through the work of Jesus and then good works coming after that takes place. Okay, so not by our works, all by grace, all is a gift from God but not simply given to us so that we can only enjoy it ourselves, but we're now meant to work out that salvation. God has ordained it to be that way. He's created us in Christ Jesus so that we will now produce good works. Okay? Any good that we produce must be viewed through the work of Christ. Okay? So any type of good thing that's accomplished in our life, ultimately God receives the credit for it. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and hopefully as we were discussing this in our groups, you were reminded of some of these passages and even brought up some of these passages in your groups. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more." So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? It's, it's Paul 
summarizing what he has just said about Adam and Jesus, that Adam's one sin makes us all sinners. Jesus's act of righteousness can make all of us righteous. And it's really the only way to be saved. It's the only way to be saved. We are, we are, we are who we are because of one man's sin. What we desire to become accepted by God can only be accomplished by one man's righteousness. Okay, so we have to filter all of our good through the fact that, that the work of Christ is what enables us to be good. Revelation chapter 7, obviously a passage that we've just recently taught through. Revelation chapter 7, verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I put in in, in my notes, the basis of our robes being white is due to the blood of Christ. Right? The only reason that we can even be clothed in white robes is because we've taken them and dipped them, washed them in the blood of Jesus. Okay, so there's certainly an aspect where, where our deeds, our deeds are present, but they are deeds that have been accomplished because of the blood of Jesus. Okay, so, so these are deeds that have been produced after salvation, not before salvation. These are deeds that have come because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, not prior to him dwelling within us. Okay, they're white robes because they've been washed in the blood of Jesus. If there's no blood of Jesus, if we haven't washed them in his blood, then they're not white. They're they're filthy garments is what they become. Okay, so the basis of them being white is due to the blood of Christ. Any good that we produce has been given to us through God's power. Any good that we produce has been given to us through God's power. Back in Revelation 19, verse 8. Yes, these fine linens are the righteous deeds of the saints, but look at the first part of eight. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. These garments are gifted to the saints. Right? They are are given to the saints. It's their deeds, but it's deeds that ultimately are, are a result of God's gift. God working them out through us. Philippians 2.13 is a, an important passage in this discussion. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's, it's God who, who ultimately changes our wants and our desires so that we even want to produce good in our life. We, we can't do that on our own. We can't, we can't make ourselves want different things. We can't make ourselves desire different things. That, that's a supernatural thing that has to happen inside of us, right? Like, like, I can't ever make myself want tomatoes on my hamburger. Like, I, I, I will never want that. And, and as much as you can tell me that it's a healthy thing, like, it's never going to convince me to do that. I don't want that. There would have to be a supernatural change inside of me for my desires about that to change, okay? Like, it's just not going to happen, Right? And for us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, for us to say no to Babylon and yes to the new Jerusalem, it takes a supernatural change inside of us to want those things because we've been perverted by Adam's sin. The only way we change our desires is for the Holy Spirit to radically transform us into a new creation. Again, this is language borrowed from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 61 
verse 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul, my soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Man, all honor and glory goes to God because he is the one producing these righteous deeds that the saints are pictured as being clothed in here at the end times. That They are being produced by God. God is the one causing these things to sprout up. God is the one who is gifting these robes. God is the one who has washed these robes in the blood of Jesus. Revelation 3, 5 through 6 uh, Revelation 3.18 and Revelation 6.11, those are all passages that we've already studied in Revelation where God is promising to give these white robes to people who are faithful to him. It's all generated by God. Any good that we produce must result in the exaltation of Christ and not ourselves. So we produce good, but it's ultimately because God's doing it through us. We produce good, and if we do so, we have to give glory and honor to Jesus for that good. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you. And what's Paul praying? That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Okay, so Paul's saying, man, there's coming a day where, where unbelievers are going to be separated. Believers are going to be called to Jesus. I'm praying for you, church, that God will accomplish every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Why? So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as God produces good in us, the goal is not for us to receive the glory for that. It's for him to receive the glory. And he's able to receive the glory because he's accomplishing it through us. Matthew five sixteen. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I mean, it's such an important topic for us to understand. And I can't challenge you enough to be fluid in your understanding of what good works mean for a Christian because it's so important when we try to pass this down to our kids that our kids have to understand the gospel and they have to understand how works factor into that that their works don't save them because if if your kids are growing up in, in good Christian homes they are very easily tricked into thinking that their behavior their behavior towards God is what will get their acceptance because they're so conditioned to think that their behavior towards you gets your acceptance. I mean, you have, to, you have to recondition them because that's what they're going to be prone to think in their sin and in their flesh is that they can be good enough. They can be good enough to earn God's favor because they found ways to be good enough to earn other people's favor as well. Man, you hear teachers all the time talk about, man, I love your kids. They are such a good kid. Right, they do their homework. They're obedient in class. Like, like think about the things that we even communicate as to how others gain our acceptance and our favor. And if you're not careful as a kid, you get all that kind of confused and you're like, okay, my teacher likes me because I'm obedient. God will like me if I'm obedient. 
and God hates me if I'm not obedient, right? And, and they, they, they have a hard time grasping the concept that it's Jesus who has been obedient for them. So I would encourage you, man, just because this stuff sounds like, yes, I know this, yes, I know this, yes, I know this, you got to be fluid in your understanding of this so that you can regularly communicate this to others and not be uh, false in your presentation. George Eldon Lodd says, while the bride must make herself ready for the marriage, her glorious raiment is not something she can acquire for herself. It must be granted her, i.e. given to her as a gift. The fine linen, bright and pure, stands in sharp contrast to the brilliant robes of the harlot. The wedding garment is a simple white garment which has been washed and made white in the blood of the lamb. God is responsible to enable us to produce good. But number two, man is responsible for pursuing good through God's power. We have a responsibility to prepare ourselves. Yes, God is going to do it, but we have to prepare ourselves so that good is accomplished through us. Revelation 19, 7, the marriage of the lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. The church has owned up to its responsibility and prepared itself. It kind of goes back to that idea that we are to separate ourselves from the world, even though our names have been written in the book of life since the beginning of the world. We still have a responsibility to separate ourselves. We have a responsibility to prepare ourselves by producing good in our lives, right? Philippians 2.13 says God works in us so that we are our wills are changed, our desires are changed. But prior to that, in Philippians 2.12, what does it say? You, Christian, work out your own salvation. We have responsibility to, to, to accomplish good. We have a responsibility to produce good in the choices that we make with our time and our resources. This falls on us to factor in time in our schedule, to factor in ways to use our resources to produce good. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I mean, there's clear responsibility on our part here to, to factor in ways to use our time and resources for the good of other people, and that we're going to be judged by that. We're going to be judged by that. I share with you recently, we've got Trinity families all the time that say, we haven't been able to find any time for community service for our kid. It's like, man, I don't want to be you on the day that Jesus comes back then because Jesus fully expects us to have found ways to use our time and our resources for the good of others. And these are people that aren't paying them back, right? These are people that are hungry that need food. These are people that are thirsty that need drink. These are people that don't have any clothes that need clothes. Jesus says, man, you've got to find ways to use your time and resources to help other people to do good for other people. To kind of summarize all this, a changed life is a necessary response to true justification. Application for us, what are some intentional ways that you are seeking to do good through your life right now? What are some intentional ways 
that you are seeking to do good through your life right now. We've seen in this chapter that people who are invited to this supper are people who are described as servants, people who fear God, people who produce righteous deeds. And what are you doing to intentionally make sure that this week, let's just think in terms of this upcoming week, that your life is going to produce good? What are some intentional ways that you plan to do that this week? For our family worship questions this week, number one, go back through with your kids and review the reasons we have to worship God. They need to know that. They need to know that regularly. And then number two, what are some things our family can do this week to show good to others around us? Let's pray, and then Tyson's going to come and lead us in one more song. Father, we, we certainly look forward to the day where we can gather and see the one that we've been worshiping all these years. Father, we look forward to the day where we will gather with other people, and we'll be able to look to our right and to our left and, and know that we are unified in what we believe about you and what we expect you to do. There won't be any more questions about, are you like this, and do you do things like this? that all those questions will be answered and we'll be able to be unified in our, in our songs. That we won't have to look at the lyrics even and say, do I really believe that? That we will know in unity that we are worshiping you rightly. God, we look forward to that day. We, we, we pray anxiously that Jesus would come back soon and, and accomplish all these things that you've obligated him to do. You've promised us these things and so we anxiously look forward to these things. In the meantime, Father, I pray that we would do our part in being responsible to clothe ourselves in good deeds. Deeds that are ultimately generated by you and the work and change that you are working in our life. Deeds that are being produced by a life that's ultimately been washed in the blood of Jesus. God, help us to be faithful in knowing the gospel and how works are, are a part of, of that in that they are a, a, a fruit of salvation. God, help us to know it in such a way that we can teach others so that we can help clear up confusion, especially for our kids. God, you've blessed us with a ton of kids here at Sovereign Hope over the last couple of years. And God, if we're not careful, these kids will grow up thinking that their, their ability to be accepted by others is based on their performance. And it will either create despair or pride when they look at their own life. God, give us the ability to communicate the grace of the gospel that our salvation is based on you accepting Jesus. Father, give us wisdom this week in how we use our time and resources that we would produce good, good that ultimately results in your glory. And Father, where we don't desire that yet, God, I pray that you would change our desires and enable us to do it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.